Almighty God, we do thank you uh, for this day that we can uh, find our rest in you. Thank you for uh, giving us your word that we might uh, study it, but um, more than that, that you would use your Holy Spirit through it to work in our lives, to equip us to be lights on this earth. As we read today's passage, we're reminded that you call us uh, to be in the world, but not of the world. And for us, that's often a hard um, path to take. So we ask that you would use your scriptures today to instruct us how we might uh, have a faithful witness to the world around us, that we would engage uh, the people and culture in which you've placed us, but also help us um, maintain the truth of your gospel. Uh, give us insight this day through your Holy Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to recap uh, where we are, we're in the middle of a section in the book of Revelation where Jesus is prophetically writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we've talked about, uh, these churches are proxies or stand-ins for the church universal. So through addressing these seven particular churches, he's addressing the churches large. Uh, last week we looked at the first two letters, um, the first to uh, Ephesus, praise that church's maintenance of doc doctrinal purity, but condemned the church for falling away from its first love by not performing those works it had done at first, which we suggested was um, witnessing for Christ uh, in their uh, location. They were a church we talked about that had become introverted and thus in danger of losing their witnessing community. The second letter praised the church of Smyrna for its faithful endurance under persecution. And we saw um, no condemnation in that letter, but rather the promise of Christ's comforting presence to that church uh, in the midst of their present and the promise of future suffering. And in that letter, Christ uh, presented himself as the eternal God who, uh, who holds forth life and resurrection. So today we turn to the next three churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, who all receive praise for some degree of fidelity, but are also condemned for compromising their witness by adopting some aspects of the surrounding pagan culture. So last week, I wanted you to think about the question, what would Jesus say to Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Concord, Massachusetts? And I still want us to think about uh, that question, and we're going to spend more time with it next week. But I want to modify it uh, today uh, as we look at these particular three churches and think about um, what are the ways we damage our witness to Christ by compromising with our surrounding culture politically, economically, socially. So that's the question I want you, as we go through uh, the letters to Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis today, what are the ways our church damages its witness to Christ by compromising with our surrounding culture politically, economically, socially. All right. So with that said, um, let me read, and I'm going to read uh, starting in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, verse 12, and read through chapter 3, verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Okay, so let's start with this church in Pergamum um, in verses 12 uh, through 17. Where do these people live? <laughs> I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. What does this mean? What, what's going on in Pergamum? Um, what's that sound like? <laughs> okay, some kind of demon worship, all right? All right, you live where Satan dwells. Okay? Where Satan dwells. Mike says it's here. <laughs> I thought conquered meant peace, <laughs> not gate of Hades. Yeah, so this is um, the place, uh, Pergamum, is the first city in Asia Minor to erect a temple to Caesar. And henceforth became the center for emperor worship uh, in that region. So, you know, where Satan dwells, um, if, if um, the Roman Empire is commanding people not just politically but religiously to act in certain ways. You could see why he would be identifying this place as the seat of, of Satan. Um, so here we have this city where um, you know the temple of Caesar is. So there's even going to be more pressure on people to publicly acknowledge Caesar through acts. Of, of some kind of, of sacrifice or public ritual. So here we've got uh, Christians living in uh, a city where there's going to be pressure politically, socially, religiously to worship um, at this particular, uh, or to worship in particular ways. So a witnessing church in this context, we would think, would be a persecuted church. Because to witness in this place is going to mean to you know, put your neck out there uh, that you're not going to do these things. So what's the sin that's befallen this church that's, uh, you know, they're praised um, for holding fast, not denying my faith, even when people are being killed for their faith. But they're also being singled out in certain ways. So what, what sins are they committing? What's wrong with this church? Yeah, so he's referring to um, uh, the book of Numbers um, to use the example of um, Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So... Um, so he's using that example from Numbers um, in the story of Israel's journey to the Promised Land as you know, a, a type, an image of what's going on in the church of Pergamum. So um, just to, you know, we're, we're not going to flip there, but this is the story of Balaam, if to go back to Numbers and give you a brief recap. So he's this prophet who Balak, the king of Midian comes and hires to curse Israel. Um, so, but Balaam can only say the words that, or he can only do what God allows him to do. And God 
instead of cursing Israel through them, through uh, Balaam, uh, blesses them. So Balak's purpose is turned on its head. But right after that, um, Israel commits this enormous sin at Baal Peor, and the book of Numbers indicates that it was Balaam who, rather than cursing Israel with his words, brought a curse upon them by encouraging them to, um, to engage in sex with Moabite women and to worship Moabite gods, particularly uh, a Baal at Baal Peor. So, you know, uh, here's this guy who was called upon to curse Israel. He can't do it because he can only, Yahweh only gives him blessing to give on Israel. But he brings destruction, and this is one of those times a plague goes through the camp uh, in the book of Numbers for this great sin that's taking place um, through this idolatrous worship and idolatrous uh, sex. Um, and, you know, it, it's, he curses them through getting them to, you know, not, you know, turn away. They're still the followers of Yahweh, but you know, do these other things too. Um, so he's using that Old Testament picture to give a sense of what's going on in Pergamum at this moment. That they're engaging um, in these kinds of uh, you know, eating food, sacrificed idols, practicing sexual immorality. It's not good. <laughs> um, you know, he's, and, and so Balaam is proverbial for that false teacher um, who in, influences people into what we might call compromising relationships. Again, think, you know, so here we have a situation, Christians living in a place where they're expected, because everyone is expected to pay homage to the emperor. And if you aren't seen to be publicly faithful, then you're called upon to make a very public gesture of sacrificing. And so what seems to be um, being taught here is... Um, people who are, look, it's just sac it's just empty food. You're a Christian, you know Caesar's not really a god. Go ahead, do it. What's the harm? You know, you know, you you serve your master. You can outwardly sort of do these acts, but you know there's no real inward power. This is just an empty outward gesture to satisfy social obligations, political expectations. Do what's expedient. I mean, here it seems to be equated with. Um, you know, what's going on, that they are a group that is encouraging this kind of um, syncretic practice. Look, you're, you're a Christian, but, you know, this is obedience to the state. You've got to obey Caesar, so it's no big deal for you to, you know, make this small compromise. You know, go sacrifice food to, uh, or sacrifice an animal participate in a feast to Caesar. What's the big deal? So it seems to be, I mean, we don't know much about them, but that seems to be the, the substance of their teaching, that it's okay 
to engage in these pagan cultural practices uh, because you know Christ is really God. These things are false. They, they don't mean anything. Um, you just need to do them so, you know, so that you live, so you don't call attention to yourself. Cheers. Yeah, so they're tolerating people who teach these things. It's not the church itself is consumed by this. But, you know, they're allowing, again, and think from a pragmatic standpoint. Um, you know, uh, oh, who do I pick on? <laughs> I don't know who to pick on. Uh, Karen, I'll pick on Karen. Because um, she's in the... <laughs> but I pick on James all the time. He's such an easy target. I'll pick on James later. But... Um, but, but let's say uh, we know that, that Karen has done something um, uh, untoward. Like she, she went to a conference and, you know, some bad things went on at the conference. But she didn't say anything. or She participated because she didn't want to stand out. And then, you know, how do we as a church respond to her? Well, we understand, you know, you, know, you don't want to be um, in a bad situation. Um, it's okay. I'll use myself. So I teach at a college, college that's very liberal, very open in all kinds of ways. And, you know, it's feasibly that I could be called upon to give tacit or even open approval to, you know, uh, um, some kind of uh, deviant form of sexuality. If I don't go along, then suddenly, you know, negative attention could be brought upon me and I could lose my job. Do I go along and sort of, you know, keep the Christian principles undercover? And then how would you as a church respond to me, you know, if it's on the news, you know, Steve Berry, professor of history, assistant professor of history at Simmons College, you know, and, you know, some big thing and I'm standing right there. Um, you know, how would you respond to me? And so that seems to be what's going on in this church, you know, that they're not doing anything about their members participating in these kinds of public actions. Again, I mean, we're talking about a culture uh, you know, politically, um, you know, it, it, not worshiping Caesar is an act of political treason. So it's, you know, religion and politics intermingle here. And, and Christians actually in, in Roman uh, Empire get charged for both treason and atheism because they're not acknowledging the gods. Um, they're, they're denying the gods. So they're, they're not doing the, the public practices and they're disobeying the public order. Yeah, maintaining what you believe as a Christian. Um, our own denomination sort of uh, this past summer um, in our, this is technical details, but in our book of Church of Order, it says, you know, ministers are responsible for upholding the laws of the state. Where do we live? Massachusetts. Law of the state says same-sex marriage. Does that mean that, you know, if you read our book of Church Order, then that suddenly puts uh, Pastor McGuire at, at maybe even uh, legal liability if he, you know, because even our own church document says our ministers are required to, you know, be obedient servants of the state. And we see that, and then to sort of jump ahead to the church and um, uh, Thyatira, that there's this, um, you know, 
there's that reference there um, to the deep things of Satan. And, you know, we can talk when we get there a little more specifically, but it's been suggested that, well, you can participate in those things and not be tainted by them um, because, you know, you have your firm belief. Um, so there are people sort of, again, trying to wrestle with this in their cultural context and suggesting it might be permissible for Christians to participate in idolatrous activities because, you know, we just know that's the culture in which we live. We have to do that to be a good um, you know, to be good politically, um, to be good economically, to be good socially. Yeah, I can't remember his name off the top of it. It's uh, the king of Syria. Um, or he's actually, the, at that point, he's the future king of Syria. Um, and he comes and, you know, it, the prophet, because the prophet knows. <laughs> this is the guy that God's going to use to smack down Israel. And so the, for the prophet's position, do I heal this guy who's come to me for healing, knowing all the horrible things he's going to do uh, to Israel? Um, and yeah, these kinds of tensions were brought us all hands somewhere else. Yeah, Jay. Our presenting conflicting views is the is the opportunity to show what's different about um, the message we hold. Um, you know, how are they going to know any differently unless we tell them, unless we show them by the way we act? Yeah, John. Yeah, you know. You know, with Paul saying, look, you know, I understand you go to someone's house, you don't know where that food's come from, you know, you could be eaten. Don't have scruples about where that food might have come from if it gets you in the way of you witnessing to these people. You know, for the folks in Revelation, I think the, it, it's sort of this public eating <laughs> of, I know this food's going to be sacrificed to idols, I participated in the sacrifice, I'm going to eat it anyway, knowing all that publicly. Um, that's the kind of, so it's, it is, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's this sort of intentional participation in the sacrifice versus what I think Paul's sort of talking about. Look, don't worry about, you know, unintentional or, you know, even if you've got pretty good, you know, I'm pretty certain that I'm eating at these people's house and, you know, they sacrificed this cow this morning. Look, don't, you know, don't worry about it. But it's this active participation that we're seeing um, in, in Pergamum. And again, so in Pergamum, uh, as we've talked about, is the center of Caesar worship. Um, there's a very, uh, I mean, Thyatira is very similar, except there the pressure isn't so much the official imperial cult, but um, Thyatira was the center of trade guilds. Every trade guild had its, its deity. So, you know, if you're going to be a, uh, a butcher, you've got to belong to the butcher's guild. If you're going to practice that trade, belonging to that guild means, you know, following this god, um, you know, engaging in these public pagan festivals, going through, you know, I got to be a good guild member. These are the, the requirements for participating in in my economic field. Uh, you know, same with baker, candlestick maker. Wait, is that the three guys in a tub? <laughs> but you know, for whatever trade. I mean, and again, um, we could think of uh, a whole host of ways that in our jobs that we're called into compromising 
positions, um, positions where we have to go somewhere that we, you know, because I've had friends who are in some business and uh, they're taking clients out and the clients want to go to a strip club. No, I can't go there. What do you mean you can't go there? You've got to make the sale to these clients. Get moving. Um, you know, you can see, I mean, we, you know, and again, this is one of the things I want us to think about. All the kinds of ways, and as Jonathan said, it's, it's not, you know, that what they're being tempted with it isn't so often, you know, a clear, this is good, this is bad. It's this kind of negotiation of, you know, what might be proper in one context isn't proper in this context. How do I maintain fidelity? Uh, uh, by engaging in this world, but not being tainted with it. And, you know, it's the flip of that church in Ephesus that we first saw, where they're, they're totally introverted. They've got doctrinal purity, but they're not engaging in witness to the culture around them. These guys, they're engaged in the culture around them to the extent they're in danger of losing their distinct witness. What's different between these people? and the culture around them. So it's sort of the flip side of what we saw in that first letter. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, putting your four, you know, I mean, putting your neck out there in these kinds of public statements, you know, brings uh, a kind of, of, even if it's not open persecution, ostracism. Um, you know, forms of negative labeling. Um, and just as we see that, uh, that's a great example of this past week. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of situation I think these Christians in these churches are dealing with similar kinds of ways. Well, why aren't you? You know, at, why weren't you at our guild meeting last week? It was the festival. Uh, you know, well... You know, I, I'm a Christian, and y'all are sacrificing to the son of Apollo, and uh, or son of Zeus, and I can't do that. And well, we're not going to trade with you anymore. You know, to sort of feel the negative, even if it's not, we're going to turn you over to the emperor for execution or persecution. We're going to stop trading with you. Um, we're going to stop conducting business with you uh, unless you participate. Um, so it's, it's not just in these churches, it's not just the open forms of persecution, but all these subtler forms of social and economic um, uh, ostracism. Okay, so um, what's the promise? That's held out. So we see in these these letters, there's there's always this word of encouragement or promise held at the end. So what's the what's being promised to the church in Pergamum? Hidden man in a white stone with a name written on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you know, let's unpack these. Take a minute, because uh, again, uh, unpacking the meaning of Revelation is unpacking Im imagery. So what do we think of when we think of manna? <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Clear back there. Yes, the more helpful people in the front of the room said, God providing, um, uh, God providing uh, food. And notice, you know, here we've had, you know, sin tied around 
you know, kind of sinful eating, the the encouragement is, look, God will, you know, God will provide. Um, and it's both a looking back and also looking forward. Again, I've you know talked about last week how the ends of the letter are pointing forward to things at the end of Revelation. Um, so these letters are really sort of many summaries of the entire book of Revelation. And the, you know, the book of Revelation ends with theses. You know, ends with this heavenly supper provided by God, um, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, white stones, yeah, that's a little harder for us. Um, there, there are a couple options. and um, One is it, it, there's a judicial use of stones, white stones. So if you're in a trial, a verdict of, of an acquittal, a verdict of not guilty is a white stone. The verdict of, of guilty is a black stone. So there could be a judicial aspect here. Um, it also could be, uh, you know, we think of white um, purity, um, stones, uh, especially, you know, we don't think rocks, but as we see in the book of Revelation later on, um, a lot of precious stones. So again, some kind of, of reward. Um, and then the idea of naming, again, is going to come up later in the book that you know, Christ puts his name upon us and identifies us as Christians. So this act of new naming signifies the permanence of our identification with Christ. Yeah, I think that the idea of permanence and sort of having a permanent future security uh, is definitely... Uh, being communicated by this idea, and in, in the next, um, in the next church, right? Is it the next church, or is it two churches away? No, it's two churches away. Um, in, in the church in Sarda, Sardis, you know, the I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. So again, that sort of having a your name is permanently written in the book of life. It's that promise of eternal security secured by God. Um, that's, that's what's held out for he who overcomes. All right. Uh, so the church in Thyatira. Wow. Um, I know your works, your love, faith, service, patient endurance. Your latter works exceed the first. So unlike a couple of the other churches that started off great and then their witnesses declined, this is a church that seems to be going... On, you know, on the upward curve. <laughs> um, and yet they have, who's this Jezebel? How do we, and again, you know, we don't know if Jezebel's her real name, but, uh, but I mean, even if it is her real name, um, what does Jezebel connotate to you? A bad woman. <laughs> Again, a specific bad woman of the Old Testament. Anybody remember anything about Jezebel? Yeah, so she's a, she's a foreign woman that, uh, that King Ahab married who's introduced all these kinds of, of, of prophets of Baal. She's bringing Baal worship into, you know, he, He's the king. <laughs> she's now the queen. And she's bringing all the, her prophets of Baal to come. So, I mean, giving sort of an official stamp of approval to Baal worship um, in Israel. So, to, again, to sort of think of that, um, 
that idea of uh, bringing pagan outside worship into the heart of the worship of the true God. Uh, what else would you say when you think of Jezebel? She has a bad ending. <laughs> yeah. Dogs lap up her blood. That's Well, it's a bad ending for her. It's, <laughs> it's the good ending for us. We're like, yay! Yeah, and that image of her, um, I mean, I mean, again, think of Jezebel is, is a term that has resonance in completely, you know, non-Christian culture around us. You say, that woman's a Jezebel. You know, that lights, bells go off, everybody knows, you know, what kind of character you're assigning to this woman. <laughs> I'll have to go on baby name tracker and see if, uh, have you ever seen this great website you can put in, um, uh, you can put in a, a baby name and you can see um, through U.S. Census data how many people are, have been named that name and so like you go to uh, Adolf and it's like really high and then World War One comes and there's a big drop off and then World War Two comes and you know it's even bigger drop off. <laughs> um, yeah, but to see uh, the, the way we sort of automatically bring up all these images about uh, Jezebel. So what's this Jezebel doing uh, here in the church of Thyatira? And as James says, <laughs> why are they <laughs> tolerating her? Yeah, so she's... Um, She's uh, seducing, and the word there that's used, it's actually used at the church in Pergamum, too, um, is um, por, it's not porneo, it's pornuo, um, but, you know, same root, um, you know, where we get pornography. Um, and that is a word that has both sexual and religious connotations. So, um, you know, she's teaching them both to fornicate, uh, you know, physically unlawful, unlawful ways, but also a kind of spiritual fornication as well. Mary, you had your hand up. Yeah, that she is one um, who is, is, you know, claiming some kind of official capacity. Uh, again, it's, it's not just that she's doing it, but she's encouraging others, look, it's okay. Um, and again, I said earlier, Theatira was the center of, of trade guilds. You know, she's encouraging other people, look, it's all right if, if the silver makers are having, you know, uh, you know a pagan orgy next week. Um, you can participate, you know, because as Christians, we can, uh, and, and to use the word used, we can participate or, or, or know the deep things of Satan and not be tainted by them. Um, you know, we can involve ourselves in these practices, and yet, because we're Christians, we know we know it's not real. We know those gods aren't real. We know there's nothing really special about this food, so it just doesn't matter. Um, you know that kind of rationalization that these kinds of practices—they're fine. It's not real different. <laughs> Um, and in fact, the one reason I wanted to sort of talk about Pergamum, Theatira, and, and Sardis all together is they're all 
sort of involved in various forms of compromise. What is different is their social locale. So for the folks in Pergamum, it, it's really going to be emperor worship. For the fo folks in Thyatira, it's really going to be sort of these um, trade guilds. So it's, it's not coming... Uh, through their political participation or you know, open public life as much through their economic participation. Um, and then uh, with Sardis, um, yeah, uh, we're not given quite as clear as what's going on in Sardis, except that these are folks that are you know, being declared dead <laughs> or um, uh, lethargic to the point of death. Uh, uh, but all these, uh, but, you know, there were still a few folks in, in Sardis who haven't stained their garments. And again, um, you know, having white garments in the book of Revelation as a sign that you've maintained uh, faithfulness to Christ. Um, and as, you know, those garments are a gift from Christ. So, uh, to to maintain um, fidelity is to not soil one's white garments. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the symbolic language. It, I mean, it makes us and, and use the word imagine. It, it makes us think. Um, it makes us. Uh, again, it's it's um, it's it's uh, Im imagery. So it makes us picture a world very different from ours. And again, it's the ir ironic reversals that, you know, this world perceives this church to be poor, but we know them to be rich. Um, you know, to imagine, well, how is it that we can see, you know, boy, you know, those are poor people. But, you know, to think about viewing those people as, as rich, um, you know, that, that calls upon an act of the imagination. Yeah, it's not imagining a future pie in the sky, you know, it's all going to wash out in the end. It's imagining a different reality now. Um, trying to think of how, yeah, uh, I don't want to go there. I have an idea, but uh, for once I'm not going to blurt out the first thing that pops in my head because uh, it was a bad idea. Um, but to imagine a very different kind of existence or, or reality than the one our physical senses are assaulting. And, but doing so in a way that we're not disengaged from this world. You know, to sort of um, see our actions and realities in a very different way. If you worship the emperor, you're really worshiping Satan. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I think there is, I mean, again, I said it the first week, there is more Old Testament in this book than any other book of, of the New Testament. And I think that's, that he's, um, um, John is, through this revelation, is using Israel's past to help uh, Christians imagine their reality now. Um, you know, and again, it's not, um, you know, oh, I'm imagining this. You know, it's an imagination confined by the historical reality of what God's done through redemptive history. Um, it's, you know, using what God's done throughout the Old Testament to imagine how God will act for us now and in the future. Um, 
I mean, here he's transmitting, I, I think it, this part it's transmitting, he's describing what Christ showed and said to him. Um, uh, there are other parts where he's, you know, it's not, so this sort of seems, these letters seem more kind of dictated and sort of kind of prophetic speech. Uh, other parts, it's John giving his, in his words, his description of what he saw. Um, so I think, you know, we have to look and see which part, um, uh, you know, what's the, sort of the immediate context. But here, in the context of chapter 1, it's he has this vision of Jesus, um, and this is what Jesus tells him to say to these churches. All right, we, we've hit our end of our time, but... Uh, and we touched on these sort of throughout the class. But are there other ways you can think about ways that our church um, is in danger of compromising its witness because we're too connected to the world? We're too worldly in terms of politics or economics or socially? Jonathan? <laughs> this is what happens when the adult Sunday school goes beyond this. <laughs> That instead of focusing on real issues and places where we should try to distance ourselves, to distance themselves, yeah, uh, yeah, that it is disturbing. Um, when Dana and I were in, um, uh, we were in Hawaii. Um, I got this was my my coup as an undergrad or not as a graduate student at Duke, getting them to pay for for me to go to Hawaii to present a paper. <laughs> But, um, but the church, that same church was in Hawaii protesting in downtown Hawaii on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it's like, really? Uh, that's the witness that, that you're presenting to the world? We're talking about the church that goes to uh, protest funerals and stuff saying yeah. horrible things about homosexuals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were protesting at the funerals of people killed in Arizona. Um, you know, what? <laughs> how how we get there? Uh, but but that might be an example of um, yeah of a, a church trying to create uh, harmful distance between them and the culture, where the culture automatically rejects um, not holding forth the positive witness of Christ. Um, all right, well, keep thinking because we, we need to go have some snack before you all lapse into a, uh, you know, diabetic coma. Um, but, but keep thinking. Uh, and next week, as we hit the last couple of churches, you know, we really want us to think about, um, you know, what Christ would say about our church. What are the ways that we're compromising with our culture where we need to maintain a more distinct faithful witness? So let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, it is um, for us uh, experiencing this world so often difficult. Um, difficult to participate in our various callings without um, uh, being uh, called into practices that, um, that it, even if they're not openly sinful, uh, leave us uneasy or um, leave us wondering. But you've called us to participate in this world. 
Um, you've chosen to send forth your gospel not in uh, a detached fashion, but through our bodies, that we are living witnesses for Christ, that you deign to bring others to you um, through faces, through communities, and you call us to live faithfully. Lord God, um, as we struggle in our everyday experience with these difficulties, would you help us through the book of Revelation and through your scriptures uh, imagine um, what's, what's real, uh, what really matters, that when we get bogged down in all the kinds of, of daily situations that you would help us to imagine not just the better future uh, that you've promised, but the better existence that we have now through participation in Christ. And though this might lead us into uh, ostracism or persecution, that it's through those kinds of difficulties that your gospel goes forth. Uh, give us that kind of faithfulness. Give us that kind of spirit that we can be uh, in the world, but not of the world. And we ask it through the empowering name of Jesus Christ. Amen.